Okay, for those of you staying here, we're going to get you handouts. We're headed to Matthew 23. Here, let's just do a little bit of trivia while you're getting yourselves organized. Okay, the Old Testament never set up true or false. The Old Testament never set up guidelines about how to prepare clean foods to be eaten. True or false? That's false. There's a lot of detail. Per the law, anything pork was not to be eaten by the Jews. Okay, that's a true. Okay, the Old Testament said to throw out any food if a fly got on, into it. Think, think about it. Would there be in the wanderings? What do you think? It's true. It's true. We'll get into it today, Lord willing. It was okay for the Jews to eat camel meat. They had a lot of camels. Could they eat them? Unclean, unclean camel meat. The Pharisees had rules about how to clean the dishes they ate from. That is true. Jesus got very upset with the Jewish leaders about their dietary practices. That is true. Matthew 23, we're going to get into it. Let's head there. Matthew 23, a lot of this stuff shows up in the course of that passage. In fact, let's set up our scene. Jesus has uh, gone into Jerusalem. It's his last week. If you've just been joining with us, we've been talking about that last week of his life and taking it, you know, paragraph by paragraph. We are in Tuesday, okay? During Tuesday, Sunday, he marched into the city. Monday, he cleansed the temple. Tuesday, he's back at the temple, and he gets into a series of debates or confrontations that are very open, very public. They ask him, several of the Jewish leaders come, and they come in different groups. They ask him several questions. And then, excuse me, then he turns the table and asks questions on them. And they ask about the taxes. They ask about his authority, about the resurrection. You know, the woman who... Um, who's been married seven times, whose husband or whose wife will, who, who, who will be her husband in eternity in the resurrection. They ask the greatest commandment. Jesus, after he answers, got them stumped. They, they don't know what to say. He turns around and asks, how can David call his offspring Lord? And he's basing it upon uh, biblical society. Dads don't, uh, don't um, exalt their sons. It's supposed to be the other way around. And David was the king, the highest in the land. So why is he calling somebody else Lord unless that person is deity? And so Jesus goes back to Psalm 110 and he's implying that King David, who you look to, he looked to my day and he called me Lord and he was willing to submit to me. Why aren't you guys able to do that and willing to do that? Then there's, uh, there's this sixth conflict or confrontation comes in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, we, we wrap up. Look at verse 22, 46. No man now was able to answer him. Everybody is quiet. Nobody dared ask him another question. Then Jesus begins to speak. And Matthew 23 is one of those really elongated conversations that he has, and it's basically, it's a condemnation. Now look at what he says and to whom he says it. In verse 1, it says that he speaks to the multitudes. He's had debates, he's answered, and people have, have eavesdropped into the conversation that he's had with the Jewish leaders. Now he turns from speaking to them and letting people eavesdrop to he's speaking openly and publicly and he's going to speak not to the Pharisees, but he's going to speak about them. And he basically is going to give some real strong con con condemnation of the Pharisees. Now, put it in setting. In his conversations, both on Monday, Tuesday, he has implied that Jerusalem is going to be judged, that there's this coming judgment that's going to take place. Remember when he was at the, at the fig tree. He cursed it, and he comes back the next day, and they said, how can this be? This fig tree, isn't this amazing? And he basically talks about if it doesn't have the right fruit, there's going to be condemnation. It is a picture of what's going to happen to Israel, that they're going through all this pretense, but in, they, they're not bearing fruit. And so he's, he's portrayed already in 
just that, that uh, comment that there's coming judgment to Israel. Then he gets more specific. When he gives the parable of the, uh, the one who is lending, the landowner lending out to the tenants, and then the um, landowner sends people to, to receive the, uh, what do we want to call it, um, the, their portion of the crops, the payment for, for leasing the land. The response of the tenants in that parable is they beat up the servants, they chase them away. He sends them, do you remember in the parable who he sends that? He, for sure they'll respect him. He sends his son. What do they do to his son? They kill him. Then it says that the king comes and he destroys these people and he wipes them out. The implication is very clear because the Pharisees realize at the end of this parable, these three parables, they realize he's talking about them. And it says that they went away angry because they knew what he was saying. But he's predicting that they will be destroyed. And then he gives another parable about the, the uh, king with the marriage feast. And in saying, come, they said, we'll be there. But the day arrives. They say, we can't come. We can't come. And he sends the messengers a couple times. And they attack his messengers and kill the messengers because they don't want to come to the feast. And it says, the king comes and destroys them and their city. Okay, and so he's made it very clear. Again, they understand he's talking about them. This is all in chapter 21, 22. That he's, uh, that's been in his earlier day conversation. So he's been predicting Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. In fact, hasn't he wept over Jerusalem on Sunday? And talking about, you know, Jerusalem and, you know, I, I, you're going you're gonna to be suffering. So he's implied repeatedly the city's going to be judged. Now it seems that he's going to give a real clear explanation how come this judgment's coming. Where is the source of his anger? Basically, it's the leadership. The leadership who is directing the people to come to a certain conclusion, they're, they're speaking on behalf of the nation and they're, they're leading the nation and they will lead the nation on Friday to call out, crucify him, crucify him. And so Jesus is going to go after the, um, the source of the problem, not just deal with the symptoms, but now he's going to the real source. The major problem that, that is in Israel is the spiritual leadership that has been leading the people astray for the last generations. And so he starts talking about the Pharisees in particular. And look what he says, saying in verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. Let's just take this a little bit phrase by phrase. He's going to say they sit in the seat of Moses. That made sense to the people of that day. In that day, sitting in the seat, by the way, uh, if I were teaching in Bible days, what would be my posture? I would be sitting, okay? So sitting in a seat would be basically your, your leading, your, uh, your ruling. The kings would sit. The teachers would sit. And so a sitting is, okay, I'm comfortable in my authority, and I have the authority, and so I'm sitting in this spot. Especially in the seat of Moses, because remember what we're, what we're talking about. He is the original lawgiver. He is the original interpreter of the law. And the Pharisees are giving laws. What they write, what they decree, what they add to the law is, um, is considered in their mind equal with what Moses said, what they interpret the law to be. And uh, frequently they're citing Moses. They're using him as authority as well as their own preachers and teachers. So sitting in the seat is basically saying we now have assumed Moses' role. We're disseminating scripture. We're, we're, on, par, we're on par with Moses, okay? We're, uh, we're doing what he did. By the way, Moses not only taught and 
not only interpreted, but Moses also judged. Remember that he was wore out, Exodus 18, that he's wearing himself out by judging the people. Did the Pharisees ever take it upon themselves to judge people? Yeah, in fact, their title that they, that they gave to themselves in some of their ancient writings was gatekeepers or watchers of the gate to determine who gets into the kingdom and who doesn't. And so they are sitting in the seat of, of great authority that, that basically who has appointed them to this seat of authority? They have. There is no pharisaical system per se in the Old Testament. It was a development during the, during the silent years and they just became traditional and, they just, and by writing their own rules they exalted themselves and wrote their own rules that they equated with Scripture to the point that they were these great authorities speaking for God, judging the people and in this place of great authority. And so he's saying, okay, understand, I understand these people are there. Self-assumed, self-appointed authority people that, uh, that they're in control. Well, what, now, when he starts off saying this, you know, you would think, okay, these guys are really in charge. What, what I find impressive is Jesus is not intimidated by them. He is not going to kowtow to them. He is going to speak, speak his mind very firmly, very bluntly, and he is going to say things to them and about them that are absolutely shocking, shocking to the society of that day. Let's take a step further. He says, okay, when the Pharisees speak, this is in verse 2 where if you're not careful how you read it, it kind of sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. He says, okay, whatever they tell you to observe, that, that observe. What he's talking about is he's advocating the idea as they teach the law, listen to them. Do what they tell you from the law, okay? They're, at, they're, they're saying, okay, we have to abide by this law, that law, but don't do what they do. Okay, uh, do what they say, but don't do what they do in, in life. He says, because the problem is the Pharisees, you know, they may be teaching some correct things, but they aren't even living up to those correct things. And in fact, if we understand the Pharisaical system right, they even wrote some of their own um, rules and laws that they added to the Scriptures. They wrote them so that they would have exemptions. Remember, Korban was one that they wrote so that they could be exempt from doing their, their temple tax duty by dedicating everything to the Lord when they pass away, uh, unless there was some other types of rules that they could squeeze in. Um, such as you have to be honest, you have to keep your word, but they wrote that if they said it a certain way, they don't have to follow it. So they're writing rules that protect them. Can you imagine politicians today doing something that, uh, that, that phenomenal? That they would write something that they would be exempt from the people. And that's exactly what's going on at this time. So therefore, he says, don't pattern after them. Okay, they say one thing, and if they're saying it from Scripture, it's valid. Thumbs up. But don't do what they do, because their life, they, they are not living up to Scripture. Then he goes on and he makes another comment about them. Okay, as we just read through the verses, he says, They bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne. They lay them upon men's shoulders, but they themselves, they won't even do what? How would we say it today? They won't even lift a finger to help somebody out. And so he's going to talk about how they're heavy burdens. But this isn't the first time he said that. Do you remember how he said it in an invitation way? All you who are heavy burden, come, come to me. Okay, my, my burden is light, my yoke is light. And so basically they put a lot of demands on the people, but they're not helping the people in any way, shape, or form. And uh, we've already talked about their exceptions. Here's, he gets into another one that I, I didn't understand totally until I did a little bit more research. He says, 
all their works they do to be seen of men. Now these are the things he's finding fault with. Number Verse 5, they do their works to be seen of men. And then he gives illustrations of how they want this public recognition. They make broad the phylacteries. They enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the uppermost seats, uh, seats and rooms at the feast. In the greetings in the markets, they want people to call them rabbi. Then he goes on. And I understand or understood a little bit of what he meant, but in doing further research, it makes a whole lot more sense to me at this point that this idea of public recognition, here's what they were doing, is one of the things was the phylacteries. Do you know what the phylactery is? Okay, it's teflin uh, in the Hebrew. It is the idea of what they do is they would go into prayer mode, and they still do it today. Um, it's, a, it's a box of some sort. Uh, some say wooden, some were saying metal in research. It's a box, and then they put verses inside. They base this upon the passages in the Old Testament where it says about keeping the Word of God between your eyes and keeping it you know, in front of you and binding it on your hand and upon your arm. And they took it very literally. When he's saying, okay, keep the Word of God in front of you, before your eyes, what, what would we say he is saying? Is he saying wear glasses with Bible verses written on them? Okay, we would say, no, as he was talking in application, what would we do? Okay, the Word of God, we're going to operate, we're going to walk by, we're going we're to keep the Word of God. Is, and we're going to follow it, and we're going we're to remember it through the day. We're going to try to practice it at work, at home, at school. And so they're taking it in a literal sense, and so when they put these phylacteries on, here I'll give you an idea of what it looks like in modern day. Okay, they could bind it on their wrists, and so this was in their prayer mode especially. They would have these scriptures here or on their hands in some way, and it's been, a, it's been for generations they have done it. And uh, for the Pharisees, it became more of a sign of how spiritual you were, kind of like um, some people do, they carry big Bibles for the sake of looking like, okay, some of us carry big Bibles because we can't read the small letter, okay, that, that's a reality. But do some people feel that the bigger the Bible, the better it is? You know, some of that show. Well, the phylacteries became show. Some of them would start, the dimensions became bigger and bigger. And so they were doing this, and instead of just kind of going, and by the way, what does he advocate about praying at times? Pray in your closet. Well, these guys would never pray in their closet. According to Matthew 6, where did they stand when they prayed? On the street corner. And so it was all show, and he's, he's saying, okay, and in their show, they've got to have the, you know, the biggest, the brightest phylacteries. They've got to make a big, a big to-do about putting on the phylactery. And so it became ceremonial, how you'd put this thing on and getting attention. And, ooh, you know, here he goes. He's going to prayer and a lot of show. And so he's picking on The idea of the enlarge the borders of the garments comes from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they were commanded to put some blue tassels on the corners of their garments. And it was to be a sign that they're a covenant people. Why? I don't fully understand. You probably can in further research. But then what happened over a period of time is the Pharisees extended these tassels and they made them large, like you see in the picture. And they started adding more of these tassels because we're the covenant people with God. This is a sign that we are special people. Well, you know, I'm more special than you, so what would I do? I would increase the number of tassels. I'd make them bigger and broader because I am 
I am really special to God. And so they were doing all this public show and display and long tassels because this special position they had. They would have this uh, idea in feasts that, in fact, they would vie. Luke uh, talks about uh, right around 12, 13, 14, I forget where. It'll come up in a bit. But Luke talks about how they vied for the seats in the banquets. In Bible days, if, if you were at a public banquet, they could have an upper room. Okay, we're going into somebody's courtyard. We're going to have our feast in the courtyard. Maybe up here in the upper room that would be elevated in the courtyard, that was where the special ones of you get to sit. Okay, the host and his special guests sit in the upper room, the upper seats. Or sometimes the upper area would be like a platform, a dias. This would be in synagogues. You would have your upper spot where, where it makes sense. Okay, if I'm sitting down speaking, you would have a raised platform. But they put seats up here. And the hoi polloi of the synagogue would sit at those seats. And so they would vie for who gets the seats you know, in the upper room. At times, remember Jesus talks about how you don't want to be one getting up there and then the, guest, the host says to you, oh, go back down. Okay, he warns them about that. And he warns them about getting, getting kicked off the platform. But it was very, very, very part of their culture. Or get the seat. Remember in a banquet, you would have your main seat where your host would be. And remember the special seats, whoever's on his right, then on his left, then on his right, then on his left, then on his right. And they would have this position very prominently displayed who were the most special honored guests at the banquet based upon you know, how far up they were on the right and on the left. And uh, you would go by age or you'd go by some other criteria. And so he's saying they loved this stuff. They absolutely, they would vie for it. There it is, Luke 14 is the parable he talks about how you vie for the seats. You know, this is, you know, they would assume it upon themselves. That's Pharisees. They would do this. He talks about how they loved the greetings in the marketplace. This makes more sense after a little bit of study that I've done, that it was in that culture. If you're walking through the store, you're walking through the street, you see each other. In that culture, it was proper for the younger to initiate the greeting. It was proper for the inferior to, and I don't know, I don't want another way of saying it, but in, in that culture, the greeting would be started by the person who was less than the, pers than the other person. Okay. Now, the problem we would have with that is which one of us is supposed to speak first? Okay. Well, they made it very clear. The Pharisees would demand that you speak before I speak. You greet me first. Why? In that culture, that's a sign that you are below me. And that's what he means you love the greetings in the marketplace, is that you, you, want people, you want people to always initiate the hellos, because in the culture, that was a way to say, you're above me, and, so they, and to call it out. And quite frankly, the, it was supposed to be done loud. It was supposed to initiate. And so they have these cultural things, and they love the title rabbi. Rabbi goes back to possibly a couple different words, meaning my master, by New Testament era. Um, and it's coming out of, what it's, it's a blend of the Hebrew and the Assyrian or the Babylonian tongue because they were in that uh, dispersion for so many years. So some of these words, we're not sure how they transfer over. And Aramaic is a blend of those two different tongues. And so rabbi, they think, came from the Assyrian, the idea of my master, and by the New Testament era is teacher. My teacher teacher, my leader, my sage. And Jesus is not saying, and here's where, here's where we've got to be careful. Is he saying in this passage, never, never ever use polite titles to people? Oh, in fact, watch what he does. 
Watch what he, where they love the greetings, verse 7, to be called rabbi, rabbi. Be not, but he says, don't, uh, don't get involved being called rabbi. For one is your master, even Christ, all of your brethren. Call no man your father upon the earth, for there is one father. Is it wrong for us to say dad to our dads? Is that what he's saying? No, I don't think so. Is he saying that we're not to teach our kids to respond, yes, sir, no, sir? Um, they're supposed to, uh, and some of you do the same thing, we, we always have this training our kids that they don't use first names, but they put a title to the first name. So if they were talking to somebody, um, Alice, you were an exception because she basically, they was, her Pennsylvania grandma was grandma. But otherwise, they would be, um, if they were talking to you, if they couldn't say Athorn, we would say, okay, say Mr. Bob. But it had to be a mister or a miss or a missus and that type of thing. Was that inappropriate? Is that what Jesus is saying we shouldn't be doing? Okay. Is he saying that, that if somebody has an earned title, we should never use that title? I don't think that's what he's saying. Okay. I, th I think we can, we can muster up from other passages. What he is saying is that those with the titles should be very careful. Um, Okay, you probably do this. Uh, when, people, when people would uh, uh, you know, say to our kids would come and they would say, okay, use a title for me, okay? Um, you know, some of my initial reaction is, don't use sir on me. That always, you know, that's for older people, okay? Don't use sir or Mr. Burgraff, okay? It was like, no, you don't need to do that. And people would say, no, we train our kids, okay? Um, and we would like that, and it was, okay, okay, that's, that's what they want, so let's work with them. Is, is that, is he saying that we should, we should avoid having people call us titles? I don't think so. I think titles are appropriate at times, yes? Okay, they're, they're name titles, they learn, it's a respect factor. I think what he's dealing with is that the person demanding the title, the person saying, you've got to call me this, not just in training kids, but you have got to call me, and I'm going to use me as an illustration. I want you to call me reverend. Only reverend. And if you said, and Chris said, hey, uh, Wayne, nope, it's reverend. Because I'm hung up on reverend in the title. I think that's where we got the problem. Yes, no? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, is where you're demanding, and you're doing it for the sake of what? Okay, I got it. Yeah, um, you know we, you know, we we've had situations where we ran into one of our staff was was speaking one time, and um, one of the persons in that where they were speaking kept on saying, you know, to them it was Art or Tony, I forget which one, and saying, you know, hey Art, what about in the in this group setting? Hey Art, what about this? Hey, uh, you know, whatever Tony, what about this? Hey, in, in this whole discussion, and they responded and said to the individual, you know, they looked, they said, well, I'll tell you what, Wayne, and the person stopped them and said, oh, my name's not Wayne, it's Doctor So and So. It's appropriate to use titles. Okay, in that setting, if it's appropriate to use titles. Why weren't you calling Tony and Art by their title? Okay, that's, I think, where we're getting into, is that attitude of, okay, me. You know, make sure I get the recognition. And so Jesus is dealing with that. He's talking about that, the marketplace, saying, okay, any person, your father, 
I don't think he's saying we can't call dad. What is he getting at when he says don't call anybody father? Was he predicting the Catholic Church adopting those titles and condemning them? I mean, did he know they would? Yeah. Is that the only thing he's targeting? Or do you think there's more to it? Call no man father. What's he mean by that? Yeah, but you, have a, you also have an earthly father. In, so what's he getting at then? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Because we call, we call dads because, yeah, it, it can be deity. Um, let's take it a little bit further than that. We call dads dad because offspring. Yes, life, life being passed on. So who gives us life spiritually? A man? No, God is our spiritual father. And I think that's what he's driving at. Um, I may, it may be wrong, but he, I, I think what he's doing is these religious leaders putting themselves in a position that they are saying, spiritual life comes through me. By the way, do some religions do that? That this spiritual leader, you can't get saved unless you go through me. Okay, and so I, I think that's where he's getting at. Neither call masters, for one is your master. Is he saying that you go to work tomorrow and you say, hey, dude, you know, instead of Mr. So-and-so to your boss? Um, I don't think he's doing that. Again, he's talking in that sense of, uh, let me see if I can help you out. Okay, and doing a little bit of research. Here's how the Pharisees wanted to be treated. Here's some of the rules they had. They had a rule like this. Any disciple of a Pharisee was never to make a public statement or decision or ruling of any sort. If they were in a crowd and there was a question asked, if there was a legitimate ordained, you know, the idea, remember, they, they get the keys when they, got, when they achieved their level of status. If anybody there was officially ordained, if I was in study, I wasn't supposed to say a word. Okay? Out of respect for that Pharisee, I wasn't supposed to make any decisive ruling or comment or whatever. There was no room for discussion if there was a Pharisee there. Then he speaks, and whatever he says, it's, that's it, okay? Um, this one, when a rabbi died in communities, the entire community was supposed to come out and public publicly do the, be a part of the mourning. So in all your villages and stuff like that, your rabbi you would go. You had to go to their funerals, okay, uh, out of respect for them. If someone openly talked down about or showed despite to a rabbi in any form, they could be publicly shunned from the synagogue. You didn't criticize the rabbis. You didn't say something about they preach really long. You don't say that. You could be publicly shunned and put out of their, their worship. Um, commonly thought is in order to gain eternal life, you would need to listen to your rabbi because they are the ones pointing you to, giving you direction for eternal life. Commonly thought, if the rabbi is coming and asking you to make contributions to something, okay, that you should make a voluntary contribution in purchasing something and you refuse, you could end up in hell because you're stingy by not listening to the rabbi. If you spoke against them, you could end up in hell because you spoke against the rabbi. So in their culture, oh, by the way, to some of you growing up in different church settings, does this sound something like some churches that operate in the world today? That the, um, that the clergy is above reproach and question, and they're not just leadership, they are lords. 
and lord it over the, over the congregation. And so he warns, Peter warns us about that. He says, you shepherds don't do that. And, and we know the Old Testament was filled with that, where Jesus talks about them fleecing the flock, basically. And so the Pharisees came to that point, and so they wanted this, uh, this attention. It was all about, you know, you serve me, you focus on me. And look at how Jesus goes on. He says in verse 10, neither, you know, be called masters, for one is your master. And then he makes this statement that he's made multiple times. Verse 11. He that is greatest among you is the what? He's the servant. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be, okay, abased or humbled. He that humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, he's preached this several times. It's right back to the idea of servant leadership, servant leadership, servant leadership, which you and I know, that's a common theme in the New Testament, the idea of God exalting those who are, have humility. And so even in the leadership position, we have to work at saying, okay, uh, in our home, at our workplace, in our, in our worship uh, mode, we should, we should be striving to portray a, hu a humble spirit, not a haughty spirit. Because what does the Bible say? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Right. And so he's talked about that. And the bottom line is, Jesus Christ, or God, He is to be our ultimate authority. Not some clergy, but God Himself. Not some council, not some uh, um, synod, or whatever you want to call it, board of deacons, whatever, or, or clergy, that, you know, board of elders, whatever it is. He said, we're supposed to be honoring God first and foremost. And the New Testament builds upon this. The New Testament gives us opportunity how we deal with somebody who is in a respected position, but they're doing wrong, and how we're supposed to deal and confront that. And so it's great that He gives us those ideas. Now, what Jesus does then is after he's made observations, remember he's talking to the crowd. This is what the Pharisees are doing. This is what the Pharisees are doing. The crowd could be standing there and doing this. Have they ever seen any of this happen? The answer is all the time. All the time. Do the people ever feel beaten down? What does Jesus, what has he said before? I have looked at the crowds and they are like sheep without... Yeah, so he's, they know what he's talking about. And what he does is he begins to pronounce a series of woes. It, it, look what happens. He starts saying in verse 13, Woe unto the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 14, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. 16, Woe unto you, you blind guides. He keeps on going all the way through, and you're going to find several of these woes, eight or nine of them that are mentioned in this text, uh, eight in this text, and uh, seven in this text, and eight in combination, if I'm not mistaken. And um, he's going to be attacking them. And by the way, the word woe means damnation. Uh, it means judgment upon you. It's the idea of you, you, you know, hellfire type idea. And so he's making that statement. Now here's the part that shocks me. In the popular thinking of the people, who are the most spiritual peoples? Even though they may not like everything they do, who are the most spiritual peoples? The Pharisees. The Pharisees are considered by all that these guys, if anybody knows they're going to heaven, it's that guy. If anybody knows how to get to heaven, it's that guy. I mean, what, what do the Pharisees have that, you know, and what can they do that most of us didn't have and couldn't do? Something real simple. Read the scriptures, because most of them they didn't have them, and a lot of people couldn't. So these guys who can read, who are trained, and they're reading their Bibles, they are so, oh my, they are really elevated in our mind. Even though we may not like what they're doing, they're elevated. Does that remind you of some religious systems today? 
that the clergy is you know, elevated and it's like those guys have all the people. So when Jesus starts saying, now think if you're the crowd standing there and your, your spiritual leaders that you look at and say they are, they are it, he is telling them basically God's going to damn you. God's going to damn you. What, would you. what would be your feeling? What would be your impression by hearing this teacher say you guys are spiritually damned? Would you be shocked? Would you be surprised? You know, maybe you would be glad because it's like, finally, they're getting what they deserve. Or maybe you'd be, what in the world? These guys, they, they do do this. They really are like this. And so Jesus, this, these statements that he makes, and he's making them in the worship center, the, the temple area. This is an amazing conversation that what he has with them. And so the crowds have to be shocked at what he says. And he gives, he gives several woes. Woe number one, he says, You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer you that. Okay, what's you're controlling. You're making proclamations that other people can't get into this kingdom of heaven. You're stifling my teachings that are basically shutting people out. You are, and then he, then he makes a statement, you yourself won't enter into the kingdom. Whoa. Whoa, are you kidding me? These guys, if anybody deserves it, it's them. And he's saying, no, you're not going to get in. And, and in fact, you're keeping everybody out. You're not even opening the door. But I'm going to take you back to where I said just a few minutes ago. They called them the watchers or the gatekeepers that they were determining who comes in and who goes out. He's, he's playing with that title that, that they've been grabbing for themselves and saying, you think you're gatekeepers? Yeah, you are. You're keeping people out. But you yourselves aren't even going to get there. Woe unto you. Then he goes and he gives another woe. He says, you are hypocrites. He says in verse 14, and not only just you know, woe, but hypocrites. He says, you devour widows' houses. You make a pretense for long prayer. Therefore, you're going to receive the greater damnation. Now, here's some of you with different translations. You might not have uh, this verse in Matthew, but uh, it's, it shouldn't be an issue for us because uh, some of you with your translations may have a footnote that says, okay, manuscript evidence says verse 14 wasn't in Matthew, but it's very clearly in Mark and Luke. So we know that it's a part of Scripture, so there's no problem for us to continue studying it. Although the Pharisees showed great religious ritual in their praying and they did all this piety, when it came to compassion like the widows of all people, man, he's saying you put rituals over relationships relationships, and you are going to receive the greater damnation. He goes to a third woe. He says, you're zealous for converts. He makes the comment, he says, you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more a child of hell than yourselves. We understand that. We know that Jewish society at that time didn't have mission boards or mission agencies where they were going out and they've, they've got this concerted, concentrated plan, but we also know at the flip side that many people did spread and travel Judaism. They did in the diaspora, go and start synagogues, and they did share the word, and there were proselytes. And he's saying, okay, but the problem is you guys go and do this, and you're not bringing them salvation, but damnation by all your rituals. He goes on, he makes another comment about them. He says, uh, as he continues, you blind guides, verse 16, whosoever sh shall swear by the temple, it's nothing. Whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he's in debtor. Uh, do you remember what he's referring to? This takes you all the way back to Matthew 5. He's saying that if you made a pledge or a promise, I swear by, you know, by you know, the footstool of the throne. If you, you phrase it in a certain way, it was not binding. 
But if you use certain words, your promises became binding. That's the idea of, okay, you swear by the temple, um, uh, the altar, it, it's not binding. But if you swear by the, uh, the gold, okay, of it, then you have to keep your word. And so the Pharisees made all these different rules. They spelled it out in their Pharisaical writings. Which oaths were binding? It, it goes back to the little kid thing. The little kid, when you're saying to somebody, cross my heart and hope to die, but they have their hand behind their back and they don't mean it because what are they doing behind their back? The crossing their fingers. Well, they had this cross your oath. And so they had this whole system. The problem with this, between non-binding and binding oaths and the way they were said, is, can you, can you figure a, a problem right away? It was in the Pharisees' writings, which were binding and which weren't. So how did you know? How did you know what was binding? So if your Pharisee was telling you something in a business deal, he might be telling you something that it's non-binding. But you wouldn't know because you don't have all their pharisaical writings. And unless he told you, you don't know. So they can make you promises and they don't have to keep them. And it's just a, it's a horrible system that benefited those who were making the rules. And so he's saying, and, and by the way, in Matthew, what did he, remember what he said? Let your blank be blank and your blank be blank. Yay be and nay be. Yeah, basically, come on, be what? Be honest. Be honest. Don't, don't try to look for the loophole. Stop the loophole idea. And so uh, they would take great advantage of people and he's saying your standards are totally inconsistent. You're going to bind other people. It, it was a basically, isn't this, a, isn't this a, uh, a contradiction of terms? Moral dishonesty. That's what they were practicing. Okay, a moral dishonesty, how they could get away with being dishonest. And so he said, bottom line is you're a bad example to other people. He goes on and picks on some other things that they do. He says, um, you, uh, let's jump down to uh, verse 22, 23. Okay? He's going to get into another area. He says, okay, won't you, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Okay? Bad priorities. Basically, you know, tithing, he's going to get into that tithing issue. And this is, by the way, where he's going to get into what we talked about a little bit ago. Uh, I'm sorry, the next one is. Uh, he demanded tithing according to the law. Look at the phrase from Leviticus. You tithe of the land, whether of the seed, the land, or of the bread of the, of the fruit of the tree. The debate has been going on for generations by this time. Do, how much do we tithe? What do we tithe? Do we tithe... Okay, what about the wild herbs? Do we tie, you know, the dill that's growing in your backyard that you never planted? What, do we, what, what exactly do we tithe? So the Pharisees came up with it that they would tithe absolutely everything, even the wild, the, <coughs> the wild mint that would grow or the wild dill that would grow, and they made it a very clear point, and everybody knew, <coughs> excuse me, everybody knew that they tithe absolutely everything. And Jesus is going to say as he goes along, okay, Look at verse 23. You have tithed of the very minor things, the mint, the anise, the common, but you omit the weightier matters, like judgment, mercy, faith. These ought you have done and not to leave the other undone. He is, this is the only time he says it. By the way, you've done something good. You're, you're tithing, that's good. That's appropriate to give to the Lord, but you're not, you're not dealing with the weightier stuff. You're not dealing with the justice, the mercy, the faith. 
And then he makes this statement. This is what we referred to. Where he goes on, he says, you blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Okay, that's what we talked about a few minutes ago. That um, look, at, look at the wording that he uses. In the language that he's using, Aramaic, he says, you strain at a galma, but you're swallowing a gamla. He's playing with words. Okay, the galma was the smallest of the insects. We, if we make a comparison, it's like a gnat, smaller than a fly. And so they debated, and Pharisees would look and say, okay, the law says that if a fly gets into our drink, it's contaminated, we throw it out. And so for years they've been discussing, well, what fly? How big of a fly? How long in your drink? And they wrote rules about this. They wrote commentaries. If it was this time of length, you didn't have to throw it away, but it was this length, or if it was this size of a fly. And their rule came down that if it was a galma, you didn't have to throw it away. It's so small it didn't contaminate. So he's saying, okay, but you get it out of there. Okay, you strain, you get this thing out of there. So he's saying, okay, you're very careful about the galmas and different things like that, but at the same time, you're eating camels. You're letting big things get past you. The big thing like a camel is unclean meat. It's very clear you don't eat the camel. And he's saying you guys are, you, you, you are fooling with minor details and you're missing the major things. And so basically what he's saying, you're so caught up with minors you're forgetting the majors. Now let's stop and be careful. Okay, let's say, is he saying forget all the minors? No. Focus only on the majors? No. You ought to have and you ought to keep on doing both. In other words, in, the, in keeping the law, were they supposed to keep the dietary rules? Yes. Were they supposed to practice judgment, judgment justice, mercy? Yes. They were supposed to do both. But they were so focused on these details and writing that, and they didn't practice the big things, the big things that, quite frankly, cost them. We will, we will have all these little rules. You guys, have, we have to abide by these rules. But if it costs us to go out of our way to help a widow, we won't do that because it's intrusion on my time. So we want to make sure that all the rules are being kept, that we're keeping all the standards. But when it comes to imposing on my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Sunday, okay, no. When it comes to me making things right. No, if it comes to me having to give up my right and forgive somebody, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's all these little rules, little rules, little rules, and forgetting this. And he accuses them of basically, you know, straining at the gnat and swallowing the camels, the idea that you got to be consistent. He isn't saying, okay, be complacent about minor things and don't worry. You know, modern day, bring it to modern day Christianity. Okay, are there, um, are there really, really important doctrines that we need to be preaching? Yes. Are there some minor doctrines that should be preached? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, all doctrine is important, is it not? All scripture is given for inspiration and truth. Okay, and so we, we want to make them all. But sometimes the Scriptures has a greater emphasis on certain doctrines and doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about some other doctrines. Does that mean we forget those other doctrines? The answer is no, no, no. But at the same time, are there some things where it comes out that says, okay, um, we might have differences in liberty? Yes or no? 
Yes, okay? And so focus on what is clearly stated and what you make application to your own life in areas that are not clearly stated. Let's not make those the major issues. Is it easy to make these the major issues? Oh, hey, listen. It'd be so easy that we could just make this our preaching time that you have to wear ties to church or you're not spiritual. Okay, is that ever stated in churches? Yes. Oh, by the way, do we have a standard for people at, in, in public service that they should be wearing a tie? Yes. Is that because of spirituality? No, not at all. It's just a presentation standard. It's a dress standard that, like any other business, whatever, we're going to have a presentation standard, period. But can we, could we, could I get off the grid and start saying, if you don't wear a tie, you're not spiritual? And then it starts going to what color tie? And then it starts going to how you tie your tie. Because remember, wasn't there a period of time that people were wearing ties? You know, big, big things? You know, okay, you're not wearing it right. Do those things then all of a sudden become the details? Okay, can we, could we get caught up with what color clothes people wear? What length of sleeve the ladies are wearing? Okay, you're going to wear a prayer bonnet. Now we have to discuss not just a prayer bonnet, but how it's attached, how big it is, can we start straining at gnats and forget the major things about recovering a soul that has gone astray. And so he's warning about those things, and he's saying, you guys just, you blew it, you blew it. Then he talks about them, the outside, the inside of the cup, and he warns them because they had all these rules about how to clean, and he says, you got to clean the inside of the cup first. He's talking about their bodies. And he basically goes through this ritual cleansing, and then he gets into an area, he calls here whitewashed tombs. You guys are like whitewashed tombs. By the way, in the Old Testament, what was the most severe thing you could do that would cause you to become unclean? Touch a dead body. Touch a dead body, it was the most, it was the most severe um, con um, consequences for, for being unclean. The longest period of time for cleansing. And he's going to say, you guys, you guys are ceremonially defiling everybody who comes in contact with you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Everybody thinks these guys are the, the answer. And he's just saying, you're ruining people. So that whitewash, and there's, there's some history there that goes with the whitewash that I don't have time to do. So I'm going to pause right here.